What's up, Slay Squad? It's your girl Lulu here, and we're back with another episode of Slay. Joining me this week is a force of a woman. She's a pioneer in women's medicine, author of Beyond the Pill, Healing Your Body Naturally After Childbirth, and now she has a new book, Is This Normal? It's award-winning, board-certified naturopathic endocrinologist and certified sex counsellor, Dr. Jolene Brighton. Today, we're going to be talking about all things hormones, menopause, and weight gain. Having struggled herself with her own health issues, Dr. Brighton knows only too well the failures of the medical industry in the US. Dr. Brighton strives to provide women with accurate information regarding all aspects of women's health. As such, she creates books that educate women on their bodies whilst also fighting against the myths and misinformation in the industry. Dr. Jolene, thank you for joining us at Slay. I've been wanting to have this conversation with you for so long. Um, we met back in 2019 on um, a women's panel on International Women's Day of All Days. Mm -hmm. I was just blown away. At that point, I think you were promoting your book, Beyond the Pill. And um, I was just blown away by your passion um, and advocacy for women's health. And you've had your own health issues, right? Um, would you mind giving us a little bit of background into, you know, what you've experienced yourself and also the struggles that you've faced? Oh, man. <laughs> That's mm. a big question to yeah, kick off when, with. When you go 40 years on this planet, like, there, you've, you've gone through some things. So, yeah. um, you know, I think... Something that a lot of women can relate to hormonally is I have Hashimoto's hypothyroidism. Mm -hmm. I actually gave birth to my first son and then found after several months that I was gaining more weight. Mm -hmm. Just had a baby. Now I'm putting on more weight. I was fatigued, depressed, having incredibly dry skin, losing my hair. And lo and behold, I had Hashimoto's hypothyroidism. And I wrote my first book about postpartum health because as a postpartum mom... All I was hearing was, well, you're a mom. You're supposed to be tired. Oh, you're gaining weight. You're probably just not exercising enough. And a lot of the similar things that a lot of women hear when they go to their doctor seeking help. And so I fortunately have been able to put those antibodies into remission, went on to have another pregnancy, which sometimes women with hypothyroidism are told yes. you won't be able to get pregnant again. And that, that was a, a long way from the first one because... They're about eight and a half years apart. So mm -hmm. I had my second one at 40. Yeah. And now I'm currently on an IVF journey because while I can get pregnant and my body wants to stay pregnant, the embryos have genetic issues. And mm -hmm. so IVF is allowing me to actually test the embryo because after four miscarriages, that was mm -hmm. just, I couldn't go another mm -hmm. one. So my husband and I decided, you know what? We're going to go through the IVF route. It's so bizarre to just still be like, they took my eggs out of my body and they, there's a baby in a, in a, you know, frozen and they're testing it. And it's also so amazing that we have this technology. So I have been a 30 something year old mom, a conceived naturally 40 year old mom. And now I am hopefully going to be an IVF mom. Oh, congratulations. I've been following obviously your journey online and, you know, I've just been so inspired um, by you being so transparent about your own journey. One of my clients actually um, suffers from Hashimoto's, in fact, a couple of them. Um, I'm really curious, and I'm asking on behalf of them today, how did you get your antibodies into remission? Oh, you know, yes. they, they will kick me if I do not ask. Yes. Like, those big questions. 
Yeah. What was that process like for you? So um, I am always very transparent about things because, you know, here we are in Hollywood of all places having this conversation. It's part of why I was like, I'm just going to tell people I'm going through IVF. And some people were like, thank you, because I went through it. I Mm -hmm. could never tell anyone. I felt so ashamed and people made because people made them feel bad. Mm -hmm. And. Uh, other people were like, you're a horrible person because you should just do everything naturally. And so I say that because I didn't want to be another 40 something that comes out and is like, I had a baby and give that like kind of false hope, that false picture. Right. Celebrities have the right to not disclose their health information, but there are sure a lot of them out there being like, I had a baby at 48 and it makes women think like, oh, that's possible. So Absolutely. with that in mind, I do want people to know that once I did have my second child, my antibodies did appear again, Okay, which is normal. Mm. You didn't do anything wrong. Mm. In pregnancy, your immune system shifts. People often say, like, it's suppressed. Not true. It shifts. And this is an oversimplification, but if we think about there's a Th1 aspect, that is viruses, bacteria we fight, and then there's the Th2 aspect, which is allergies, eczema, eczema, asthma, should be parasites, but we don't encounter those in the same way that we used to historically. Mm -hmm. So with that, in pregnancy, Th2 comes up, Once you give birth, TH1 flips back on. Mm. Once you birth the placenta, the immune system starts to shift, and that's to keep you safe. Now, the whole reason it shifts to a TH2 dominant state is to protect baby. Mm -hmm. Because TH1 is like, that's not, that's not us. It's got to go. And it doesn't know a baby from a virus or a bacteria. Oh, so it kind of treats it as like, it has this kind of like response, like almost like a like a, almost like an immune response, but could yeah, we say? Exactly. So mm-hmm. its job is to attack any foreign invader. And wow. baby being genetically distinct, not similar to you, not exactly you, the immune system detect, would detect that. So your body being wise shifts so that TH1 isn't upregulated, it downregulates it. Mm. So then once you have a baby, it comes back online. Main driver of most Hashimoto's cases is that TH1 response, is Mm. that TH1 side. And that is where in, so I guess we should define that Hashimoto's is an autoimmune condition that affects the thyroid. You have antibodies that flag the thyroid for destruction. So having antibodies doesn't mean that you are going to have thyroid destruction. It's potential. Mm -hmm. It's saying, hey, destroy this over here. It is confused. It's saying this isn't us anymore. The immune system, if the T cells pick up on that, they come in, they attack the thyroid, then we lose thyroid gland. Got the you. more gland you lose, the more likely you need a medication and a medication for life. Mm-hmm. And just so we're clear, you cannot live without thyroid hormone. Sometimes people are like, I don't want hormone replacement. This is like insulin. Mm-hmm. You can't live without it. So. Yeah. Putting antibodies into remission, you've got to look at that TH1 aspect and look at the things that trigger the immune system. So Mm -hmm. for myself, I went hunting for hidden infections. This is the same thing I do with patients. And so what type of things did you look for? So I looked for things like Epstein-Barr virus, which I almost this is mono. Almost everybody has had mono. Mm hmm. That was not something that was remarkable, but what was is I found that I did have dysbiosis in the gut, so an imbalance in gut bacteria, gut flora. That's me. Yeah, so I really went to working on my gut health. So to develop autoimmune disease, the research tells us really there's 
three ingredients. Mm-hmm. So you have the genetics, you're yep. susceptible, but like who cares? Because we have genetics for lots of things that predispose us, but mm-hmm. it doesn't mean we'll have those. What matters is having a triggering event Mm-hmm. and intestinal hyperpermeability, also known as leaky gut. Yes. So giving birth, mm-hmm. that's a triggering event. Yep. Going through perimenopause, menopause, that's a triggering event. Having a car accident mm-hmm. can be a triggering event. Mm-hmm. So things can trigger this immune activation against your own tissue, and this can happen with any autoimmune condition. So, And knowing that we've got the leaky gut component, you have to heal your gut in order to stop that autoimmune attack, Mm. that autoimmune flare, the antibodies, all of the confusion and chaos. The Mm. majority of your immune system lives in the gut. So that is first place where you have to start. So you're basically saying, and this is, you know, one of the the issues and the conversations that we have in the gym with um, a lot of our clients, especially those that are struggling with hormonal imbalances that can cause or lead to weight gain. Mm-hmm. We're basically saying rather than focus all of our time on energy, on the weight loss, the fat loss, yeah. we should be shifting our attention to healing the gut first and then potentially using exercise as you know a beneficial lifestyle change that's going to create a better environment for our bodies to kind of re you know heal themselves absolutely so you're not going to lose weight if you have uncontrolled hypothyroidism Mm. so your metabolism is tied to your thyroid if you do not have enough thyroid hormone you are not, you're going to see your basal metabolic rate is coming down and you're going to have a really hard time even exercising. Mm -hmm. And so does that mean you shouldn't move? No. (laughs) And so one of the best ways to regulate the immune system is through exercise, Mm -hmm. but the right kind of exercise, which is basically like walk away from anything in the nineties, which is like, you know, um, you know, just get on a, a, a bike and just, you know, sprint it out and, and do like a, like a typical spin class that you'll see. Sometimes so they go, are we talking high intensity exercise? What would be like the ideal sort of workout mm-hmm. for a person who's suffering with hypothyroidism? Yes. So if it depends, so I should say this, there's a whole spectrum of where you might be at. Mm-hmm. What you need to do is pay attention to your body. So I can give you some ideals, but for an individual to gauge because healing looks a little more like this and not like this. So (laughs) it's not linear. You know, it is not linear. And so I say that because if you find that you exercise three days later, you're still sore. That was too much. And that means like, does that mean, oh, never do that exercise? No, it means dial it back and work your way up to that. But Mm -hmm. that and that your recovery is perhaps a little bit slower than potentially the recovery of a person who, whose hormones are functioning at normal level. Yeah, so you know the delayed onset muscle soreness, the DOMS, mm. we all dread it. And so if you're sore a couple of days after your workout, but you're still able to go up the stairs, you know, and, and get around your day, that's fine. Someone with hypothyroidism, they may work out and then find three days later, they're still really sore. Mm. And they're even, they're like, I'm going to take the elevator or I can't carry these grocery bags right now. Like I'm just too sore. Love it. And we need thyroid hormone to recover. Yep. But in addition, if you are in that autoimmune state, you've got a lot of inflammation as well, which can make recovery difficult. Mm. And all of this pulls on the adrenal glands. Mm. And so this high intensity interval training, uh, love it so great for most people in a healing phase not Mm -hmm. going to be the best thing and so this is where we look at doing stretching 
and and strength training that helps support the joints. Mm -hmm. So it's really easy to get injured with hypothyroidism and have a poor recovery, but it's Mm. also something where women typically report joint pain. And Mm. so I like to recommend them working with a trainer that helps with stabilizing joints. Mm -hmm. I definitely think we need to be doing strength training, but instead of doing like an hour of weightlifting, maybe you're looking at just doing 15 minutes Mm -hmm. and maybe it's even just body weight and you're Mm -hmm. working yourself up to that. Mm. We want definitely gentle exercises and stretching you know, with so many hormone conditions we can have uh, where the connective tissue starts to feel like it's not as elastic as it should be. It feels like it might snap. And so working on that flexibility is also important in Mm -hmm. preventing injury. So with somebody that is hypothyroid, I really encourage them, you know, while you're getting the medication dialed in or you're working on the other aspects, listen to your body. Mm -hmm. If you wake up and you're already so fatigued, or you haven't had good sleep, you're better off sleeping in than trying to go and hit that like high intensity class. And we mm-hmm. have to also look at, you know, I've had so many patients who are marathon runners and I'm like, I just need you to stop running for a bit. Mm-hmm. And we just need to signal to your body that the environment's safe. And mm. they're like, but running is life. Runners it's, always hate me yes, for this. It's and a really interesting thing with runners because I feel yeah. like it's almost an addiction, especially with marathon runners, sorry, distance runners. But yeah. our sprinters do not suffer with the same afflictions. Yeah. Um, well, and it's almost like a drug, miles is right? a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's like a drug. And I think, you know, are we talking about keeping the body in fight mode effectively? Are mm-hmm. we talking for those people with hyperthyroidism giving them the opportunity to take their body back into the parasympathetic in order to heal. Absolutely. So, so. one of the things that I've um, you know, been implementing and I implement with all of my clients is um, a really adequate cool down. So um, really trying to understand, especially those clients with hyperthyroidism, how long is too long a workout? Typically, like I like to spend about 45 minutes of weightlifting um, and never over an hour, you know, there mm-hmm. are so many times I see people, you know, talking about 90 minutes in the gym. What are you doing? Yeah. Other than working your body in a catabolic state into a catabolic frenzy, i.e. when the muscles start to break down. And we talked about inflammation. Mm-hmm. So that's going to put, you know, the body into a really crappy place, yeah. especially if you have something like hyperthyroidism. Yeah. So one of the things I work with with my clients is um, you talked about stability. So lots of, and I think the interesting thing is um, potentially not necessarily backing off what your body can do, but really tuning in Mm -hmm. to what your body can do so like potentially lifting heavy if you're a strong heavy person is not a problem but then like you said listening to perhaps the way in which the body's responding to that load Mm -hmm. um the other thing i was actually mentioning was the fact that we cool down with a really lovely stretch like a good five to ten minute stretch which i always find brings people back into the parasympathetic um and i've noticed actually when those clients with hyperthyroidism travel they always tend to get niggles and injuries and I think it's a niggle that's a a niggle is basically a niggling injury it's an injury that um otherwise wouldn't it's a small injury it's not like a a big um soft tissue injury it's not like they get hamstring tears um more often than not it might be um you know like a little bit of dysfunction in the Mm -hmm. lower back or lower back pain um and so what I've seen actually is when they travel Typically, what we see is an increase in in minor injuries Mm -hmm. and that set back their training and habits and can cause like frustration, which I'm sure, you know, you're you're very kind of aware of. 
Um, so that's really interesting. And I, I'm kind of convinced that it's because there's no cool down process. Mm -hmm. That we typically go to a gym, we work out, but we never take ourselves back out of that fight mode um, and back out of that kind of um, excited state where our adrenaline is pumping and everything's elevated and bring it back down to kind of flow mode and mm -hmm. the parasympathetic. So that's really interesting. You know, as mm. you say this, um, so I worked my way through school as a group fitness instructor. It was always the most difficult thing to get people to stay for the cool down. Yeah. Always. Mm -hmm. And to me, it's almost, uh, you know, as I've grown wiser in my years, you know, I thought like, oh, it's just because people don't appreciate it. They don't care. They don't know. And I'm like, you know, it's because often the perspective is that exercise is a chore. It's something to check off. And then not realizing that the warm-up to cool down is the full completion. And that is the self-care piece. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And that so much you know, in the stillness, it is so hard to be in the stillness and quiet and with your body and breathing and like a cool down is so much more intentional in mm -hmm. some ways in your body, um, your body mind connection. And I think that makes people really uncomfortable yes. as well to be there and be present. And when we are always in that fight or flight state, we're always in that go to go it f almost feels too indulgent to even slow down and take that time. Mm. And yet that is, this is something I would say is absolutely essential. I love that you do it for everyone, but certainly if you're struggling with a chronic condition or any kind of hormone issue, especially those that are affecting, well, they all affect your joints and your muscle, I mean, all of your tissues. And so I really think the emphasis on the cool down, cool down is wise. And for people to understand that, Backing off, so with people who are marathon runners, we were talking there, backing off is really looking at how athletes will train and they push and then they have their period where they back off and they're so much stronger when they come back. Absolutely. This is an opportunity to mm. actually tune in and strengthen and build in a way that will make you more powerful once your body has moved through that healing phase. Mm. What I would love to say to all of those distance runners out there is there is such an undervalue um, or strength training during those times is absolutely perfect. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's been vastly undervalued in the long distance running community. Um, and as an Olympian and having trained at that level, I can assure you that the best athletes in the world are training. I've stood in the gym with the likes of Mo Farah um, and you know the whole British Olympic team with regards to the distance runners, they're all in their lifting. And it's an absolute essential part of their you know, development in terms of their endurance. So you can continue to do um, other forms of exercise that will keep your um, cardiovascular endurance really high that is not necessarily load-bearing or stressful. Mm -hmm. One of the examples is aqua jogging. It's something that we used to use a lot oh, yeah. when you we were do injured. anything in the pool and yeah. it is intense. <laughs> Absolutely. The interesting thing about aqua jogging is there was zero impact. So when we would get lower limb in injuries, we would strap on a flotation belt and we would basically, you know, potentially train for the same duration or the same kind of splits and intensity. And we would work out that session in the pool as if it were on the track. Mm -hmm. But our joints and um, would get obviously the benefit of recovery and we would basically be able to recover way faster than if we were still trying to pound our bodies on the track and, mm -hmm. and push through those injuries. It was, you know, this is the top level techniques that you're getting. This is an absolute tip. 
So I love the fact that those two things are being, you know, reiterated. Mm -hmm. But you mentioned intention earlier um, with regards to the way in which you train and the way in which you cool down. Um, how much of um, our nutrition, with a person with hypothyroidism, how much intention should they be putting towards the things that they are eating? And what should they be eating mm -hmm. if they're suffering from hypothyroidism? Yeah, well, in general anybody, whatever body you live in, mm. should be looking at fiber, fat, protein at every meal. And when we think about fiber, you know, often people are like, okay, so I've got to add some powders. Sure, you can add things like psyllium husk and fresh ground flaxseed, but it's also looking at vegetables and mm -hmm. diversity of plants. And so we're all going to do better in that way. These are things that are going to support your hormones. If you're someone who has hypothyroidism, we want to also be looking at things that are going to feed, nourish the thyroid, enable it to do its job. So often you will hear many people say that a vegan diet doesn't work well for those with an autoimmune condition in general, but certainly with Hashimoto's. That is in part because of the B vitamins that we need and the iron requirements we have to produce thyroid hormone to be able to utilize it and blood sugar stability. Yes. And protein, adequate protein, I feel like is often so overlooked and there have been so many myths around it. I mean, mm -hmm. I got my nutrition degree, you know, 20 years ago and you know, even back then when I was studying it, there were people saying this 0.8 is way too low. So too the low. 0.8 grams of protein per kilogram and we should be looking at like more like one. Mm -hmm. I went into my nutrition research studying sarcopenic obesity, and I was like, we are not eating enough protein mm -hmm. as a society. Yep. And we can, it's played out. Mm -hmm. It's played out in the older generations. So where should we be aiming um, for the average woman who is um, taking part perhaps in physical activity? What, um, what should that be? If we're not having 0 0.8 grams, what should that be in your yeah. opinion? You should be looking at more like 1 to 1.2, maybe even 1.4. Mm -hmm. If you're building muscle, that is so expensive, mm -hmm. so expensive to maintain. And if you want to maintain it, you have to fuel with adequate protein. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I think a lot of people don't realize is that protein and the amino acids that you get from it, so that's the breakdown, is absolutely essential for liver detoxification and running your detox pathways that help you clear out hormones you no longer need. So, mm. and if you are someone, I think an athlete is like, I need to you know, fuel with muscle because I'm going to rebuild tissue. If you're someone experiencing autoimmune disease, you're having tissue destruction, you also need protein. Absolutely. And I'm not saying you can't be vegan and be successful, mm -hmm. but it is very hard to be vegan and to get adequate branch chain amino acids and get all the adequate nutrition unless you are being hypervigilant about your food. Mm -hmm. And that is so hard mm -hmm. when you are sick and you are in this healing phase with mm -hmm. hypothyroidism and you barely have the energy to cook, yep. let alone be, and you have got brain fog and you're like, how much protein did I get today? Yep. Am I hitting my 25 grams of fiber and mm -hmm. getting diversity, which is going to help with diversity of the gut microbiome? You know, thinking about all these things can feel like a lot. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I always recommend reassess your diet. First thing people always jump to is like, I need iodine. Now you've probably heard that. 
And you do, but with Hashimoto's in particular, the research has shown us that if selenium is low Mm -hmm. and you don't have enough of that, then you can find yourselves flaring the autoimmunity, making yourself worse if you start supplementing with iodine. Mm. And that's why I recommend things like eating fish weekly because that is not only going to give you iodine, it also gives you selenium. Selenium. And if it's cold water fish, Mm -hmm. then we're also getting omega-3 fatty acids, Mm -hmm. which can also help with the autoimmune process. Give us some examples of cold water fish. Yeah, so mackerel, sardines, salmon. I think, um, you know, here in LA, I'm like, you can get salmon everywhere. Absolutely, (laughs) I eat salmon every day. Trout? Yeah, well, if trout is not, uh, it's not going to have the same amount of omega-3s as uh-huh. you would find in like, and you have to eat the brown stuff Yeah, on I the don't fish. eat trout anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's still like, I still think there's um, a lot to be said about getting variety in your food sources. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's an important thing to recognize that if you have access to variety, trying to make sure you're not eating the same thing every day as well. Mm. Although... My children have grown up eating sardines and there are weeks where I have to be like, you guys, you can't be eating sardines every day. Let's mix it up a bit. But I do also have to trust they probably know their body. They probably need something here. Mm, Talking about knowing your body, I want to have a a real quick conversation about misinformation in the medical industry. Mm -hmm. Something that you've been a humongous proponent of. Um, I remember, like I said, back when we were talking on the panel um, about the pill, I feel like it's 2023 Mm-hmm. We have the internet, we have social media. Why is there so still so much misinformation um, out there about women's health in the medical industry? Well, women's health is uniquely politicized, unlike men's health. Mm. And so it is, uh, it's a very interesting thing within the medical community and outside the medical community. So we've got people who are anti-birth control and they don't want anyone to have access to it and they see no utility for it. There is absolutely utility for it. And then we've got other providers who are absolutely adamant that this is this is the tool for like women everywhere and there's no reason we should have to bleed. And um, I mean, I've even seen doctors writing opinion pieces about how like we can be as strong as our male counterparts by never having a period. And I'm mm. like... We're kind of stronger. Um, And uh, if you look at the athletes who've been training with their period and training with their menstrual cycle, I'm like, we we are here. They slay. They Mm -hmm. absolutely slay. So, um, you know, there's, there's, you know, the ideology around all of it, but there's also just the conception and the teachings of medical school, which is, you know, basically I joke that the algorithm goes, you go to your doctor and you have lady part problems or period problems. And they ask you, do you want a baby? Or do you not want a baby? Mm. And if you say not, they're like, here's the pill. Right. And if and when you do, we'll deal with that later. And if you do want a baby, then they're like, oh, we should do lab testing. We should figure out what's going on. We should refer you. And that, I think, is a real disservice. Mm. When we use the pill to treat women's symptoms without knowing why they Mm -hmm. have those symptoms and without giving them options and giving them the information they need to make that decision. Mm -hmm. Should they choose to use the pill? Mm -hmm. Let's tell them about the nutrients it can deplete, how it can impact their gut, and let's enable them to be successful in using that (gasps) medication you're really triggering a really a thought in my mind because I mean you we've got this amazing book that you've created beyond the pill and that is very much about women advocating for um, natural forms of contraception Um, but it's just twigged in my mind we talked about 
um, autoimmune disease and I suffer with colitis. Mm. And you said a triggering event and, uh, and I was like, oh, a triggering event like the Olympic Games. Well, I actually um, got colitis after I um, stopped taking the pill mm -hmm. and it was also in conjunction with the Olympic Games. Mm -hmm. um, so tell us a little bit more about what kind of options we have other than the contraceptive pill. You know, there hasn't been a lot of iteration, which is so frustrating, but there are options. Mm -hmm. So if the pill doesn't work for you, maybe you're having mood symptoms, you just don't want to be on a medication that you have to take every day. Maybe you're not good at taking a medication every day. That's also a possibility. IUDs are also an option. Mm -hmm. And there's hormonal and non-hormonal IUDs. Mm -hmm. And they have actually the highest efficacy rate. Mm -hmm. So if you don't want to get pregnant, that is your best bet. But there's also fertility awareness method as well. Um, I'm wearing Aura Ring right now, and it integrates with natural cycles, and it helps me so I, I don't have to wake up and take my temperature every single morning and write it down. But it is you know you can do that as well. But it is a really nice way to grab the temp data mm -hmm. for fertility awareness method. You need the temp data and your symptoms. No birth control can you just take a backseat to it. You mm. have to be an active participant, except maybe the IUDs, but you still should check your strings and mm -hmm. know what's going on there. But with fertility awareness method, that is paying attention to your data to predict ovulation with the idea that sperm can live five days, your egg can only live one. And so we've got a six day fertile window in which you cannot have penetrative sex that is unprotected. Right. So that means that you can have penetrative sex if there is a barrier, a mm -hmm. condom in place, or you can do something else like mm -hmm. I talk about in Is This Normal? Um, but you cannot be using the pull-out method and then say, oh, this is fertility awareness. It is not. Mm -hmm. It is then the pull-out method, and that's got about a 20% failure, okay. So, which is really high statistic mm. of becoming pregnant. Yeah. So not a good idea to use that. I'm using all of this information, but in reverse, because Eric and I just got married, and I'm like, let's go to the next stage, like imme immediately. So I'm like, <laughs> okay, how many? How long have we got? How many days? I'm yeah, like, okay, yeah. noted. Um, but not good for obviously those who, but who want to control. But with fertility awareness method, you can also use that to get pregnant. So that mm. is, it is not a method that will work for everyone. And so yeah. I like to be clear about that. Mm. Um, and there can be a lot of different scenarios why it won't work for you. And mm -hmm. one being like, you just don't want to have to track all of that. Mm -hmm. But it is such a great way to know your body. I've used it since my last son. Uh, my first son, I should say, um, since him. And I was able to go eight and a half years without getting pregnant. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there were critics who were like, that's just because she's not fertile anymore. And then mm. we decided to try and we got pregnant our first try because yep. I had it dialed in and I knew exactly when I was going to ovulate. Mm -hmm. And here's the secret. Three days before you expect to ovulate and the day you ovulate, that's the time to yes. have sex. Yeah. One of our clients um, just got pregnant, first time trying, mm -hmm. um, because she was super dialed in on her ovulation window. She was actually using an ovulation app, which signaled um, mm -hmm. that she was actually ovulating three days early. And so she was able to catch that window right at the right time. Yeah. So with like... Here at the Slay Gym, we, I'd say, are kind of pioneers of women's health. We're doing all the things. And we're really excited about making sure that other women out there have more information. And speaking of, you know, more information and also misinformation, who is it that profits from the misinformation? Like, it obviously exists out there, but who's profiting from it? 
So, you know, it depends on what misinformation we're talking about. Yeah. But the idea, the whole concept that, you know, being a woman is inherently horrible. Periods are just meant to suck. And you're going to have horrible moods, horrible skin, all of that, unless you take this birth control pill. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, this is the pharmaceutical company who will profit from that. And it's often people are like, oh, doctors just prescribe you the pill because they're the ones who make all this money. Right. Doctors do not make money from pharmaceutical companies. Mm -hmm. And if you want to see their websites online that actually track it, mm -hmm. and they track it by way of, did they go to dinner? Mm -hmm. Where they bought any gifts? But you, there's no doctor who is prescribing and then being paid for every prescription they write here in the United States, it's protected against that. Mm -hmm. There certainly are, you know, doctors who end up going working for pharmaceutical companies and these things happen, but your average practitioner, mm -hmm. they really are when they prescribe you the pill doing it because that's what they feel because that's what they've been taught is the best thing that in their toolkit to help support you. Mm. So what is the cost would you say of this misinformation to women and women's health? Oh gosh, I mean, yeah. that's a huge question. And it just, I, you know, the first thing that comes to my mind is how do we actually measure that and mm -hmm. quantify that? Is it the, you know, loss of time in your career because you didn't get adequate treatment and adequate, inter, you know, interventions that could have actually helped you with endometriosis. And mm -hmm. so you were missing time off of work. You didn't get the promotions. You didn't get the advances. You didn't, you know, make more money. Is it that, or is it that you had PCOS and you were put on the pill and nobody worked you up and then you were unable to have a baby because when you started the pill, you asked, well, can I get pregnant and, You know, later? And your doctor said, yeah, as soon as you come off, you can get pregnant. Mm. And at 16, when they said that, probably true. Right. And at 38, maybe not so true. And mm. so it is really something of like, how do we actually quantify that? How do we measure that? And, you know, that's the birth control piece. But then there's also the piece of the stories that we tell ourselves and we tell each other that it's just normal mm. for you to be in so much pain. It's just normal for you to bleed for more than seven days. Mm. It's normal to feel so tired all the time. So that's just another aspect of, of misinformation that goes around is telling women things are normal that hold them back in life when in fact there are solutions, there are things that can help because it's not normal. So in general, would you say, should we be trusting our doctors or should we be pushing back? So it depends. There's a lot of really great doctors out there. And then it's just like every profession, right? Like if you, like I just had a hair fiasco, man, and I wish that I had like gotten phoned a friend first about it. But in every profession, whether it's a mechanic, a hairstylist, or, you know, medicine, there are always the people that you're like, meh, like you're not, you're like, you're seriously not the person I want to be working with. Mm -hmm. um, and then you've got other people that are stellar. And so... You have to trust your doctor, and if you can't trust your doctor, that's not a good relationship for you. Mm. We have to start thinking about these kinds of relationships in the same way we would friendships or romantic relationships. That, like, if you're like, I just cannot trust you, trust yourself mm -hmm. in that feeling and find a new provider. Got you. And there are so, in you know, many of my books, I outline. The, the data to be tracking for yourself, the questions to be acting, asking your doctor in, is this normal? 
I put quizzes in there so that if you go to your doctor and let's say it's PCOS mm-hmm. and you bring it to them and they're like, yeah, no, you just go on the pill or, you know, it's you, lots of women have irregular periods. Don't worry about it. Like these kinds of things that many of my patients have told me their doctors have said, there's a checklist in there for you to be like, well, I do have acne and I have hirsutism, so hair growth on my mm-hmm. chin, chest or abdomen. My periods are irregular have you ruled out PCOS? And so I put these quizzes in the book so that you can literally assess yourself and then go to your doctor to confirm it, Mm -hmm. having that data in hand. Mm. Best way to protect yourself against being gaslit by anybody Mm -hmm. is to have it written down in front of you. Absolutely. Are these, um, I was going to say, how can we advocate for ourselves in front of the doctors? Is this something that obviously is in the book, but is there downloadable copies online that we can potentially print off? So the um, audio version, they will give you the PDFs to print off. Got and you. just so everybody knows, whoever you buy the audio version from has to give those to you. People yeah. always message me on Instagram and they're like, can you just send those? I'm like, I actually don't have them. I haven't seen them. They don't give them to the author, but uh-huh. <laughs> Audible will give them to you if you purchased it. Got you. And failing all of that, you can just screenshot the yeah. checklists that are in the book. I love that. Like there is so much in here. Um, so, so much information. Sam and I, producer Sam, have been going through it through over the past like few weeks. Um, and we've bookmarked so many great things. There are so many checklists, so many symptoms, you know, things that you can be looking at, PCOS, um, lots about sexual health, which we'll probably get into on another podcast because we can do a slay after hours. Um, but one of the things I um, wanted to talk about with regards to resources was what are the websites that you would recommend as credible sources for any questions that we have um, regarding women's health? Obviously. Shamelessly plugging my own. <laughs> I spend so much time. So yes, DrBrayton.com has been around for over a decade. And um, honestly, every single week I am going through articles. Our team is updating things and we have just about everything for you know women's health in detail for not only what is it and how do you get it, but also what can you do about it naturally mm-hmm. with the, the idea that you're going to go to your doctor. They're going to give you the run-of-the-mill conventional approach, but I want to give you the stuff that they don't always have time for, Mm -hmm. like the nutrition counseling, guiding you in the different modalities, whether it be like mind-body medicine or, um, you know, using acupuncture and bringing in the science as well. Mm -hmm. So that if you're trying things and your doctor's like, well, there's nothing to that, you can actually show them citations. And Mm -hmm. I've had a lot of people, we've had so many readers over the years say, like, I showed my doctor your website. It actually changed how they practice. They Mm -hmm. were, they agreed with me. They saw the studies and they were like, let's try it. And then when it worked, they were like, great, let's, Mm -hmm. let's make sure that we're employing this. And we're talking about naturopathy and, um, you know, you're a naturopathic endocrinologist. Um, what do you say to those people who are like, meh, not a real doctor? Oh gosh, I've gotten that for so long that I'm like, okay, what what am I going to say to you? It's so funny to me because people will say like, well, you're not really a doctor. I'm like, well, I do have a medical license and I can prescribe drugs and I have all this training and, or, you know, um, my title as a naturopathic physician, uh, they will say like, well, that, that's not, you can't call yourself that. And I'm like, but it literally reads that on my license. That's mm-hmm. what the state gave me and said to me. So 
You know, there's a lot of professions that have faced that. I mean, even as it is now in California, they don't want to allow, uh, if you aren't, unless it's an MD, they're like, well, if you are a doctor of psychology, we don't want you to call yourself a doctor. Oh, and wow. yeah, it just becomes this thing that it's like, is this really serving the public? Mm -hmm. Because what's so interesting is that I will meet people I've met doctors. So I, I lecture at a lot of medical conferences, which is funny when people are like, you're not a doctor. And I'm like, that's funny. I teach doctors. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so when I'm lecturing at medical conferences, people will sometimes come up to me and they're like, they'll tell me story about like, oh, this naturopath and all this stuff. And I'm like, were they actually trained and licensed? So because there are people out there that just use the word. They'll just say, oh, I'm a naturopath right. or I'm a doctor of natural medicine mm -hmm. or I am, you know, usually the one is that if you are board certified in natural medicine, we, we don't have that board certification. So I'm board certified in naturopathic endocrinology. We have these subsets that have board certification, not like naturopathic medicine is what we're trained in. And then we have our specialty training. So what I'll often find is that these people aren't actually trained and they're telling people like, you need to do colonics every day. That's the answer. Or just mm. things that I'm like, that is downright dangerous. Like you. you said that to somebody <laughs> like what? And so mm. I will encounter medical doctors who are like, yeah. So I thought it was same, same. Now I'm realizing that I was misinformed. I was not educated about this. Mm -hmm. And it's always like we end up having a good laugh. And it is, that is the thing I think we have to protect the public against. Mm -hmm. And the way we do that is by licensing naturopathic physicians who have gone through the training, who do have the skill set, because they are not the people out there doing these really outlandish things or saying, you know, outlandish things to people. Like mm -hmm. we very much, like other medical professions, have it drilled into us of when do you refer? What are the dangerous signs that mm -hmm. like it's out of your scope? And that is the, I will say, in trusting a doctor, if your doctor says, I don't know, but I'll find someone who can help you, that is a trust signal. Mm -hmm. And sometimes people are like, that's scary. We can't know everything. And mm -hmm. you never want to work with anybody who isn't willing to refer you or get you the help. If you come to an end with them, they need to say, I need to get you to the next person. Or if it's an emergency, you know, there's people out there that um, have certainly, I mean, they're not they, they'll call themselves a naturopath. They're not licensed in yeah. any way. And they'll be like, if you're having a heart attack, take this homeopathic. I'm like, mm. if you're having a heart attack, you're calling 911. Yeah. Like, this is not a like, let's mess around. Oh, there's this tincture that you can take. I'm like, that is madness. Mm -hmm. Like there is a place for every type of medicine. There's a, place, a seat at the table for it, mm -hmm. but it's just about us all understanding each other's scopes and yep. coming around the patient as a team to support them holistically. Mm. Talking about support, we have a number of ladies here at the Slay Gym um, who are going through perimenopause and menopause. They have a lot of questions. Um, I want to ask a few questions about menopause because I feel like it's one of the things that isn't really talked about mm -hmm. until much later on in life. And sometimes a little bit too late until, yeah. you know, it's happening to you. Um, my first question is, how does menopause affect the body? Yeah, well, I want to just say to your point, you, if you were in your 30s, take care of your health now to make that menopause transition so much easier. How, so, what can we be doing yeah. in our 30s? <laughs> like, what is it that, you know, one of my, my questions for you was, when should we start thinking about it? And what can mm -hmm. we be doing, like, 
right now. Yeah. Well, the reality is, is that as you and I sit here, it's, it's, it's a little bit too late for our bones in terms of when we should have been building up our pink bone mass. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the problem is I think we often are like osteoporosis is the 60 plus year old disease. And really it was the 16 year old. Oh man. Uh, the 16 year old who really should have been, you know, training in a way that builds bone density, but also eating quality foods. And that is so hard. I don't know how yeah. you were as a teen, but my goodness. So, um, Let's define something so that it's clear to people why I'm going to say what I'm going to say. So firstly, the average age of menopause is 51. Mm-hmm. It is acceptable to go through menopause at 45. Anytime before that, it is not acceptable to just diagnose someone as menopausal mm-hmm. without further working it up and really understanding. What I mean by that is you say, oh, my period's been gone for a while and your doctor says, oh, you're menopausal. No. Mm-hmm. Something else, we need to work that up. We can enter into perimenopause a decade before we even go into menopause. So for some women, perimenopausal symptoms are going to start at 35. What are those symptoms? Yes. So those symptoms can look like the the classic hot flashes, night sweats. Mm -hmm. But we know that, you know, as high as 60% of us might experience brain fog Mm -hmm. in that. That can also be a sign of too low of estrogen, of hypothyroidism, of excess stress, of poor nutrient status, so not enough B12. So it's important that, again, it isn't just you're put in a box of like, oh, you're just perimenopausal. Mm -hmm. Why do you actually have brain fog? There also can be joint pain and stiffness. Mm -hmm. You know, as you get into menopause, frozen shoulder is something that we've often heard like, oh, that's just what like menopausal women get. Okay, It's hormone related. It's the hormone changes that we Mm. go through. Yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking because one of my clients had it and I was like completely missed that. No. So just hearing some of these things is really validating from a personal training perspective and something really great to be able to look out for um, in our clients that are potentially approaching that age. Mm-hmm. Um, what are the first steps for someone experiencing menopause or symptoms of, you know, perimenopause? Yeah. So perimenopause can actually be a different kind of an intensity than menopause. So we can see Uh, A lot of mood changes, so anxiety, depression coming up. Um, Weight changes can be Mm -hmm. happening. So we can certainly see body composition starts to shift. Muscle mass is shrinking. Mm -hmm. We see increased adiposity or fat cells coming in. These kinds of shifts and changes of perimenopause, we want to start intervening. Going back, so before I had said, like, diversity of fiber makes diversity of microbiome. That's actually been associated with lower visceral adiposity. So belly fat is what Mm -hmm. people think of. This is fat that gets around your organs. This is going to increase your risk of heart disease, of diabetes. So we don't like this stuff. You're getting more of a booty. Friend, we don't mind that so much. But if it's a visceral adiposity, that's really increasing your risk. So one thing is getting that fiber up and doing that now. Mm -hmm. The protein that we already talked about. So everybody rewind. Everything that we talked about is important. Yeah. Also, how you're training and you're exercising matters greatly. We need daily movement and we need frequent movement. So Mm -hmm. once we get into our 30s, the muscle mass declines. Once we get into our 40s, it is is your mission and you must choose it. If you want to live long, Mm -hmm. you must be building muscle mass. Mm -hmm. And that's because you're going to start losing it. Now, muscle mass is going to help us 
So regular exercise will help with the hot flashes. Muscle mass is going to help us with sensitization to insulin. Mm -hmm. So we don't end up with that diabetes risk, but also so we don't end up inflamed, packing in that visceral fat and so that we can maintain our hormones overall for as long as our ovaries are healthy and happy. But Mm -hmm. anytime there's a strain on your blood sugar, there's a strain on your adrenal glands as well. Mm. And once you enter into menopause, it is now up to your adrenal glands to produce DHEA. Yep. They've been making it all along, but it is up to them now to get that hormone to you so you can convert it into estrogen and testosterone and have that. So mm-hmm. regular exercise and strength training especially. Mm. This is where, you know, when people have been like, I love Zumba, I'm like, that's great. Do it for the joy in your heart, but yes. please, please, please pick up some weights. Mm-hmm. I am also a proponent of Pilates. I don't know if you've seen it online. People are like, it's always like the 20 year old who's like, oh, if you're in perimenopause and menopause, like stop doing Pilates. You need to be lifting weights. That's your excuse for where you're gaining weight. And I'm like, please don't stop with anything that mm-hmm. helps with your pelvic floor. Mm-hmm. Because we know one of the main reasons that women end up going into nursing homes is from urinary incontinence. Mm. That is in part hormones, mm-hmm. but also your muscles yep. in your pelvic floor. So that I'm like, don't give that up. Mm-hmm. Like it, it's a, it's a, it's an and kind of situation where we want to be doing things that are about flexibility, about strength, but mm-hmm. also supporting the body holistically, not just like go to the gym and squat it out forever. Absolutely. I always tell women that your, you know, physical fitness and particular physical strength, look at like a pyramid Mm -hmm. and I feel like Pilates and cardiovascular training cardio is a great foundation but it cannot be the only thing Mm -hmm. and adding and stacking physical strength on top of that will give you the longevity and the sustainability of muscle mass um, bone mass that you're looking for in the future the things that give you that kind of you know ability to still have good posture Mm -hmm. um, good physical structure avoiding continence all of those things you know weigh into your 50s 60s 70s 80s Um, And I think that everybody, you know, could be looking at the way in which they're preparing for those things now, not just preparing for the next summer or Mm -hmm. not just preparing for the next, um, you know, big life event. Um, So we're basically saying that we love and, i.e. we love Pilates and weightlifting, but, you know, those things are, are just perhaps not enough on their own. Mm-hmm. I love that. Um, we have some questions for you, Dr. Jolene, from our Slay Squad. Now, these are typically members of the Slay Gym. Um, this is uh, from Louise. <clears throat> That's me. <laughs> um, could a lot of our health issues be fixed, our women's health issues, be fixed with diet and exercise? So, the majority of things that bring people to clinicians are things that really were rooted in poor lifestyle and dietary choices. Mm -hmm. And I want people to understand that it's not said, I'm not shaming you or judging you. Like, why is it we're not teaching nutrition and actually quality exercise? I hated gym in school. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, why are we not teaching these things as a foundation for people? Like, people just don't know. And so the majority of chronic conditions in the United States are preventable. Mm-hmm. And they all come down to diet and lifestyle. Mm-hmm. The two things that your doctor has never been trained in. Because by the time you need a doctor, it is beyond diet and lifestyle. But does that mean we just negate it? No. 
this is where I said, like, we need to have a team. So while I'm a nutrition scientist and I have all this training, I still employ practitioners like registered dietitians, uh, certified nutrition specialists, people who have that knowledge and can take somebody and really help them transform their diet in a positive way. Well, I told you I was a group fitness instructor. Well, I'm not going to go into the gym and train people. Like where I'm at is to be like, are you going to die? Yes or no. And like, what, what kind of interventions do we need? Mm -hmm. And then to be able to look at, okay, we need to get you with a personal trainer. We need to get you over to the acupuncturist. We need to get you over to the psychologist or to the counselor. Like mm. we need to look at you as a whole person mm -hmm. and not just the one piece of, you know, diagnosing you and yeah. just treating you from simply the the medical perspective that we've come to be used to in the United States. So I say all of this and I want people to be empowered by it because mm -hmm. you truly have so much power with what you put at the end of your fork mm -hmm. and people have been lying to you about how much power there is there for a mm -hmm. very, very long time and purposely misinforming you about stay away from butter eggs are so bad nobody should eat needs like mm -hmm. all of these kinds of things if you actually go into the research and you look at research that hasn't been funded by the wrong parties you look at that and you find that it's not true like mm -hmm. the omnivore diet the whole foods approach that is what is most beneficial but you know tricking you into thinking that diet has no impact on anything that really has not served us mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, look where it's gotten us quite mm -hmm. simply perhaps time for a change okay this question is from um lulu <coughs> me as a young woman in her 30s what hormones should i be aware of when getting an annual checkup mm. so when it comes to an annual checkup Looking at fasting insulin, I think, is really important. Starting in our 30s, fasting insulin can rise before we ever see changes in our hemoglobin A1C, uh -huh. which is the three-month marker of what your blood sugars look like. So it takes your, we look at your blood and we say, what's well, the average your blood sugar has been for the last three months? And so that and fasting glucose may take a long time till we see changes fasting insulin will be the first. And we want to head off any metabolic issues at the pass before they can even creep on. The other thing annually is getting a thyroid panel and just checking in on your thyroid, especially if you have a family history of autoimmunity and really autoimmunity of any kind, I would say, because once you have one autoimmune condition, it's so easy for your body mm. getting confused all over again and forming a new autoimmune disease. So getting a full thyroid panel, a TSH, free T4, free T3, TPO, and thyroglobulin antibodies is the full panel. And I like to do an annual screening because if I can catch antibodies before there's tissue destruction, we never need the medication if we can put that into remission sooner than later. Mm, I love that. Great information. Um, this question is from um, Kira. Does hormone replacement therapy increase the risk of breast cancer? That is always the big question. There's right? actually two people in the gym today that was like, asked that question. Yeah. And we are hearing so much more about hormone replacement therapy and rightly so, because I think it is and it's been unjustified in withholding it from women because of that cancer risk. So when you look at the research and you look at the risk of things like I mean, dementia, depression, anxiety, things that I already mentioned are related to perimenopause and going into menopause, 
uh, cardiovascular disease as well. I mean, in some of these chronic issues that really can be debilitating to our life, you may be twice as likely to develop those as you would be to develop breast cancer, and yet no one wants to give you hor the hormones that are actually the, the problem here that could help that and give you a solution because of the fear of breast cancer. Mm. So what we found in the research is that certainly there are people who are predisposed to breast cancer who would be at a higher risk. Certainly if you're doing a hormone replacement therapy, and it is not following guidelines and it is a very high dose, like this could be potentially problematic. Okay. But we have also found that hormone replacement therapy, when done right, may very well be protective against cancer. Okay, great information. And then finally, Melly asks, why is it that the removal of an organ for women is often the only option? Oh, gosh. Like if you were a guy, for example... Um, you know, they wouldn't dream of taking like your balls away. You know, there it seems like there's a real kind of almost inequality in terms of um, the way we treat women and in, in, when it comes to looking at what our options are. You know, hysterectomies, etc. Yeah, I mean, I I hate to be the one to say it, but it needs to be said is that we're often just viewed as a baby container with potential for making life. And if you don't have that, then why do you need it? And that really is rooted in medicine's perspective that we've got the man as the standard to which we should all be measured. And then the inferior baby making accessory, you know, model over here, which is women. And that's what we've seen research primarily being done on men, like with pharmaceutical development, and then them being like, just give it to women. Oh, it doesn't work for them as well. Mm. Oh, they die. Like, and that is why starting in the 90s, the late 90s, they were like, you have to include women in these trials. You can't yep. just be doing these trials on mm. men. So that is a big part of it, is that we are often reduced to just our reproductive capacity. And when you end your reproductive years, it's kind of like, well, what, why do you even need that baby container? Well, we are starting to understand that the immune system is involved with the uterus and that we've actually never really studied the uterus beyond just the potential for housing a you know future human. And so we don't actually know when we start taking out body parts, the full capacity of how this could affect someone mm -hmm. because of the lack of research. And certainly you're right. Nobody would be like, oh, just have a full hysterectomy and, uh, you know, take, take off, you know, the testicles because they understand those are necessary for hormones. But for women, they're like, well, you're going to, they're not going to make hormones in the future eventually. So let's just take them now, except mm. that there is an increased risk for all cause mortality. That means all types of death. Mm -hmm. The younger you lose your ovaries and the further you go without hormones. So mm. if you lose your ovaries, you need hormone replacement mm -hmm. therapy. And of course this is always individualized, but the same is true when you start looking at, you know, your previous question about hormone replacement therapy is that if you take hormone replacement therapy close to menopause, mm -hmm. you can prevent things like cardiovascular disease and dementia. Mm -hmm. If you already go on to develop those things, we can't give you hormones and reverse that. So Got these you. hormones are preventative mm -hmm. and they've been shown to reduce all cause mortality. Mm -hmm. So all the bad stuff that would come for us doesn't have to come so quickly and maybe not at all. Got you. So inform yourselves on that as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. I love the fact that we're having this conversation because I'm hoping that there are women out there who are going to catch the wave sooner perhaps than they perhaps would have done without it. 
Um, we're going to finish up, Dr. Jolene, with some quickfire questions. The um, topic or the title of the <coughs> quickfire questions is called In or Out? You simply <laughs> have to answer, is it in or is it out? <laughs> this is, as we talked about the pull-out method earlier, that's what oh, <laughs> comes that up might, first. That might mind. come up again. Yeah. Okay, so we've got 10 things here. One of them is an or question. We'll come to that. Okay. So just quickly, Ozempic for weight loss, in or out? Well, in in the right person out in some other people so we'll get you back on so another we'll get you back on another Slay I have episode a whole to talk article about this. that i'm publishing on drbrighton.com talking about it talking about how it can be helpful with pcos but like there's also a big lot of unknown for women as well absolutely oh i can't wait to get you back on for that episode hrt in or out in um the pill in or out depends Aye. i'd say let's keep it in because everybody deserves the right to have that option iud's in or out in the pull out method in or out <laughs> out <laughs> pull it out friends <laughs> <laughs> menstrual tracking apps in or out in <laughs> um cesarean or vaginal birth whatever works for you to be healthy and baby to be healthy the goal is healthy mama healthy baby do you have a preference would you recommend a preference to women ever? No. Just I basically mean, depending on the person, completely and utterly um, yeah. personal. I mean, I think as often as possible, we don't want to have medical interventions because medical intervention begets medical intervention. However, <laughs> somebody who has, I've had two unmedicated births, um, it's wicked and it's painful, but I'm so grateful that I had that experience. And at the same time, if I needed a C-section, I'd be so grateful to have that available to me. Mm -hmm. 100%. Um, supplements. In. And you recommend some on your website, I noticed. So fab, check those out. Protein. In. In, in, in. And weightlifting. In. Hey. <laughs> um, Dr. Jolene, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I wish we could literally lock you in and keep you here all night. Um, please, please, please come back on again. We have so many more topics to cover with you. Um, and I want to say on behalf of the Slay Squad and the Slay community, a humongous thank you. We are so grateful for your service to women's health. Um, it helps us immensely in opening the door and having conversations. Um, it gives me as a personal trainer the opportunity to direct women when I don't have the answer to a medical professional that can help. And also, you know, the amount of resources that you create through your books and your website are so, so valuable. Um, like my heart just goes out. I'm just absolutely adoring fan of yours thank you so much for coming on yeah thank you so much for having me i'm louise hazel and you can find me at louise hazel and you can find dr jolene at dr jolene brighton on instagram or you can find slay at slay athletic and you can get dr jolene's book is this normal it is on sale now i highly recommend this book there's so much good information in here for those of you who want it for yourselves or if you have teenage daughters, start educating them now. If you haven't already, feel free to follow us on Spotify Podcasts. We look forward to seeing you next week. <laughs>